For the third year and counting, Richard Skipper has been celebrating the artists you love. Richard Skipper is all about celebrating life, art, and his guest body of work. Please join us while he showcases these diverse and talented individuals. Here's Richard Skipper. Happy Saturday, everyone, and welcome to a very special edition of Richard Skipper Celebrates. Who or what are you celebrating tonight? I believe that every day is to be celebrated if we take the time to do so. And I am so excited about tonight's guest because I get to celebrate this incredible man, Christopher Byrne, and his incredible book, celebrating <laughs> one of my favorite uh, playwrights of all time, and that's Terrence McNally. You got the interviews that I always dreamed of getting. And as I'm reading the book, I'm going, what an amazing book. I want to say something Aww. before you speak. And that is, everyone who watches this show knows that I am all about celebrating a person's body of worth. And I use the word worth instead of work. And you succeed with this book. Yeah. Uh, because we really, you delve into the art and the events in his life that shaped his art and how his art shaped the events around him. So congratulations on an incredible book. Well, thank you. It was, it was such a pleasure and a privilege to be able to do it. It really was a labor of love. So I want to go back. Uh, there, there are so many layers that I want to talk about. And the timing of your book is so important right now, especially when books and plays are being banned in our schools. I know. And you're also dealing with a man who was open at a time where his uh, friends and cohorts were not. Uh, and I look at everything that he accomplished in his life along the landscape of the time that he was living in. And how do you think that he would be navigating today's waters? Well, I think he'd be very upset. I think that he fought very hard for equality. He always said that he never had a choice to come out because he was basically outed by putting a, a gay character, the first guy to put a gay character in a positive light on the Broadway stage back in 1964 with them things that go bump in the night. And fast forward all the way through the AIDS crisis and the political crisis, and finally his marriage to Tom Curtihy, that really was sort of the, the, the pinnacle for him and the, the level of freedom. And he always wanted to be heard. And he finally felt heard, not just as a playwright, but as a man and a gay man in love with his husband. Well, before we delve into him, I want to talk about you for a few moments. Uh, I asked for a photograph of you uh, at five years of age. Here you are. <laughs> <laughs> are you holding the wall up or is the wall holding you up? I think I'm, I'm leaning back against the wall. That would be Easter Sunday because that's usually when I wore a short pants suit. <laughs> <laughs> I love this. And the reason I asked for a photograph of uh, my guest at five years of age to me, the five-year-old self is the purest self. It's before school and peers and everyone else begin to tell you who you should be or who you should not be. And we learn a little bit about who you are in the very first pages of the book. Uh, but I want you to take us back to who this little boy is and tell us a little bit about this little boy. Oh my gosh, I, my parents were both teachers in a private school, which I mentioned in the beginning of the book, and we lived on the campus, and this is before we lived on the campus, but they created for 
my brothers and me, the most creative atmosphere to just go and do and be whatever we wanted because they were teachers and they really felt everything was learning. And it was, it was pretty exciting. But you also had a key to the school. Yes. And you put that key to very good use. A few years later, I might add. Um, tell us, uh, we don't want to give away too many spoilers because it's all in the book, but tell us about the key. And there's a lot of symbolism with that key. Well, it really, it really was the key to, to introducing me to Terrence McNally. My father was head of the middle school. One of the administrators it was called the Tower Hill School in Wilmington, Delaware. And for some reason, I don't know why, my brothers and I got master keys. My father had what was called a grandmaster. It could open any door in the school. And we wanted them and we, we got them. We took them down to the dime store and it said, do not copy. copy. And of course, they copied them for maybe 30 cents <laughs> at the time. And, and so it was very powerful that we could do that. And uh, so I, at the end of my ninth grade year, I snuck back into my English teacher's room and used the key to open the door and steal a whole bunch of plays that he had well, thrown let's go, out. Let's go back a little bit, if okay. you don't mind. So you you go in. I mean, you were already doing a few plays in your school. Right. Uh, and so this was the path that you were already on. And you go in and... Uh, you see him going through right. and you see him actually tossing the plays into the garbage bin. Right. Which <laughs> I love this story. Shocking. Um, shocking. Well, I remember when I was in high school, we didn't have a drama department in our high uh -huh. school. I grew up in South Carolina. And so I, when, if you had uh, straight A's, you were able to choose your own electives. So I went in and said I wanted to take a drama class. So they assigned this class to uh, Miss Phil, uh, 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 to Miss Russell, and and I remember that we got a book of plays, and there was uh, and there was a Terrence McNally play also, and I think it was uh, Things That Go Bump in the Night, and we had to go through each one of these books and rip that section of the <laughs> book out and throw it out. Uh, before we were allowed to proceed with the class. Oh, my goodness. Our teacher was afraid that she would get in trouble mm -hmm. by exposing us to this play. And I remember that so vividly. Yeah, yeah. And so my teacher was throwing things out, throwing those out. I went back and I got them. And in the stack was the acting edition. You know, those dramatist play service ones that we all got in high school with the edits. And, and, and on the cover, he had written inappropriate, no rewrite possible, as if, uh, you know, <laughs> an English teacher in, you know, a private school could really rewrite Terrence McNally. I just, that just has tickled me throughout my life. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the thing is that you point out that early on that when you first started uh, working with him uh, to tell his story, he said to you, uh, tell my story, to quote him, warts and all. Right. And you uh, said that it was very difficult to find the warts in his life because he lived such an open life. It was. It was really difficult to find warts. I mean, he had, you know, his je uh, jealousies. He, it's too strong a word. He had his, his contretemps with, with people. He fought with people. But he always ended up making up with them. He fought like tooth and nail with uh, Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens. And yet they were the closest friends because the fight 
was always about the art and making the product better. So, so it was, I mean, it was pure Irish on display from what I can gather. So with you, what was it about Terence McNally that first resonated with you uh, with the desire to tell his story? Well, I, I think the reading and things that go bump in the night when I was probably 13, 14 years old and seeing a positive gay character who believed in love. Now, he ends up dead, but, you know, pretty much everybody in that play does uh, who goes outside. But, you know, he has this whole speech about how he still believes that it's out there and it could be found. And as a very closeted young man, it was that gave me a lot of hope because I still had to stay in the closet. But there was this freedom in literature that, that allowed me at least to explore the idea that it was possible. Well, what did you learn about him? I mean, from the very beginning in terms of your initial interactions with him um, about how his art truly shaped the theater at that time, because the theater was going through a major change. And I also love in your book, when you talk about uh, theater going at that time, as opposed to what the experience is for most people, and you, the words are right there, and I've been saying this for the longest time, it's an elitist art form. The yeah. average person cannot afford to go to the theater anymore in the, in the ways, and nor do we have the luxury, I feel, of being as experimental as he was at the beginning of his career. Right. He came out of a very strong uh, theatrical off-Broadway, the, the beginnings of the off-off-Broadway movement in the late 60, 50s and early 60s, because we had, we had playwrights like Ionesco and Janae and some of the absurdists who were being produced downtown. And a lot of the young writers were writing like that. And they were writing for places like Cafe Sino and La Mama and different places. And Terrence once said, it, it felt like you could finish a play on Thursday and be rehearsing it on Sunday. He, he said, that probably wasn't true, but that's what it felt like at the time. And another thing that I learned from reading your book is how he, you know, nothing was set in stone with him. Uh, he would mm -hmm. love to go back and revisit characters as time went on and uh, put, you know, a modern take, if you will, uh, mm -hmm. if he could, on uh, revising. He was very hands-on uh, in the revivals and that came along uh, later in his life. In most of them. When he got a hand in it, uh, he, he, was, he was very productive. Uh, plays like Some Men, which started in Philadelphia, and before it came to second stage, it was it was very much rewritten. Uh, the, there's a great story in there about uh, lips together, teeth apart, because that started out as like three and a half hours long, chock full <laughs> of vulgarity. Christine Baranski saying, I'm a girl from Buffalo. I can't say these words. And, and <laughs> you know, and my mom can't hear me say these words. And, and they really... It, but it took a long time and he was very collaborative. That was the thing. He was really collaborative and, and worked with the actors. He loved hearing an actor's voice in his mind when he was writing. So we're going to start at Rise, uh, <laughs> you know, at, and uh, we're just going to really, you know, go over the um, arc of his life and his career. You chose to really focus on the art for the most part. Obviously, these mm -hmm. other aspects of his life are very much there. Um, was this a choice that you made on your own or was this a choice that was made with Terrence McNally? It, it was the choice that I made on my own. It took a long time to get the book greenlit because 
a lot of people who, who aren't theater people, of course, said, is he big enough to merit a biography? And we were going, yes, of course he is. Yeah. But but when it when it was finally green lit, I was talking to him and I said, "Remember, I'm not Kitty Kelly," and and he thought that was very funny because I didn't I think that there's a lot of dirt or whatever about people that doesn't have any kind of lasting value. But I'm thinking of young people who want to pursue the theater to understand how it evolves. I think that's more more enduring and certainly what Terrence would have wanted in terms of his legacy. And we have a comment here. Uh, Bruce says, I love the title of your book. It says so much. How did the title come about? Well, he's got the, his, his musical, which is a, a Man of No Importance, which was just revived here in New York at CSC last week, which was uh, actually cribbed from a movie, which was cribbed from a wild play, a woman of, a woman of no importance. And it really just seemed like, but at the same time, it seemed like, Pro promotional and modest. And that's what I always liked about it because, because Terrence would get out there and hit the Huskings to talk about his work. But when it came to himself, he, he was a fairly modest and uh, I won't say retiring, but he was a fairly modest person. Now, and he lived very much in the moment. Very much in the moment. Yes. Yeah, he was not given to uh, a lot of looking back. He said, I, I went to therapy for a short time. It kind of helped. <laughs> now, I ask you to send a couple of your favorite photos. I First of all, I mean, look at how adorable he was at this. All right. Um, you know, tell us why this picture, what do you get out of this picture? Well, that that's Terrence in, in his 20s when he was when he was just at Columbia and he was probably in a relationship with Edward Albee, who said he was the most beautiful boy he'd ever seen. And I just I just love that. It's kind of pensive. It's very youthful. And it just is a it's a beautiful picture. And I love this. Uh, this is a picture with the producer, I think it is. I'm joking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> They're all snakes. <laughs> They're all snakes. So, uh, and I love, and this was him in India. I love this picture. He, I mean, what must have been going through his head at that moment? He went to India twice. I think this is from his second trip to India. The first trip, he was sent on a kind of a promotional trip where they were trying to, they brought a lot of artists and people who they thought would promote India back, back here. Well, what came out of that play, out of that trip for him, was the play A Perfect Ganesh, which is not necessarily, you know, a, a come see India now kind of poster, but it is, a, it is a beautiful play and it really does bring up a lot of the spirituality that he was profoundly affected by. So when you got the idea to start working on this book, uh, was it an easy sell to Terrence to do this uh, or did he feel that the timing was right for this? Well, I love this story because it's it's fun because I was actually sitting in his living room in 2014. I was talking to him about Mothers and Sons, which was coming to, to Broadway. And I was interviewing him for Gay City News. <clears throat> and we, were, we had been acquainted, but I was doing a formal interview. And he, he sat back at the end. He said, you know, I've decided I'm not going to write an autobiography. And I don't know what came over me. But I said, can I write the book? And he looked at me and said, sure. And that was <laughs> that's what happens, folks. And that was it. I I just uh, an impulsive moment <laughs> happened. And where I mean, I always am interested to know if the first words that we read are the first words that you wrote. Um, you know, I, I they they aren't because I I think that the as I started to think about it and I started to think about you know, meeting Terrence and, and what did, what did his work mean? I really started thinking about that first moment when as a young child, a child, 
I read and things that go bump in the night. And it really sort of started from there and how that artistry had affected me. I didn't know anything about personal life or I certainly didn't know anything about gay life in the in New York in the 60s, but or the, the late 60s. So it was uh, I really was intrigued by how a reader or a theater goer connects to the art that they're seeing. Now, I've already mentioned that when you first sat down with him, he said, tell my story, warts and all. Um, was, I mean, did he censor himself at all in terms of the conversations that the two of you had together? Uh, or was he pretty out, you know, very forward with everything? He was very forward with everything. He wanted to set the record straight on certain things. Uh, they're not like cataclysmic, uh, just, just sort of funny things. And he was very intent that it should be my book. He, he didn't tell me how to tell the story, but he said there were things that, that he wanted to tell. And there are stories he told me that he said, don't put this in the book and don't tell. And I promised. And even after he passed away, I didn't and I won't. Uh, because he just made you want to honor anything he asked. He was that kind of guy. So do you have a favorite uh, piece of his work that really stands out above all others for you? And I, why? I, 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 it's so interesting that, that you asked that question because they really are so different. I, I definitely think in plays it was Bump because that was that was my way in. But there's also there's also Lips Together, Teeth Apart, which came along and it was it was an AIDS play where no one is gay and no one is sick, right? And, and the idea of having AIDS be the, the ghost that hovers over the entire play, like Hamlet's father, uh, I thought was, was fascinating. With musicals, I, I really do love A Man of No Importance. I love Ragtime. I think Stephen Flaherty is a genius. That is just mm -hmm. a genius score. And then in his operas, I, I have been obsessively listening to Dead Man Walking, and I can't wait for it to be at the Met this year. Wow. Uh, you, we learn early on when you are talking about his early theater going and his exposure to theater. I mean, with both of his parents, they were active theater goers. Uh, and uh, but, you know, we get the sense of how he would even uh, embellish the facts around what he saw, when he saw and how he saw it, uh, if it made a better story. Oh, absolutely. He loved making a good story. And in fact, his one of the stories that actually in one of our first conversations, he wanted to set the record straight that that Ethel Merman and Annie Get Your Gun was not the first Broadway show he, he, he'd seen. Uh, he, right. He'd seen this red, the Red Mill. It's a it's an operetta from the from the 20s. But he said it always made a better story, given where I came from, came to that Ethel Merman would have been the first person I saw on Broadway. So he loved that. He loved that story, and he really kind of loved setting the record straight on that. Well, I love in the book, he says, that all I could remember about the Red Mill was that Red Mill. <laughs> right. When it comes to any Get Your Gun, he could remember every aspect of it. Yeah. And, you know, and, uh, and as we learn more and more about him, uh, these bigger-than-life women characters in the show uh, had a profound impact on him especially do, and again, I, I want to be very careful. I don't want to give away too many spoilers, the relationship that he had with his own mom. Yeah, that was that was complicated. His, his mother was an alcoholic and she, she was kind of a party girl. And I think that she, when she had kids, she hadn't really planned to have kids. She, she'd planned to, to be a partier. And it really was a very intense relationship. And 
he, she often would be partying. He and his brother Peter would come home when they were started living in, in uh, Dallas and then Corpus Christi, and mom would forget to make them dinner because she'd be partying in the living room with her friends. So, so when he, he actually saw uh, the king and I, he thought, well, Anna Leowen should be my mom. I mean, there she is everywhere. She loves everybody. She, she, he loved that, that idea of that, that, that mom. Do you remember the first uh, play that you saw of Terrence McNally's? Uh, the, probably the first play that I saw of Terrence McNally's would have been Next, Downtown. It ran forever, Downtown. Uh, it's, it's the play, it's the one act play that was done with Elaine May's adaptation. Mm -hmm. And it's about a middle-aged man who's called up for the draft mistakenly and is just sort of run through this bureaucratic process. It's hilarious. And as you were getting to know Terrence, the man, uh, outside of the art and everything, what surprised you the most about him? I think, I think what, what surprised me the most was how much he was really interested in other people. He'd always want to know what I'd seen and what I had, you know, what I thought of what I'd seen and what was, what was I going to see and what was I excited about seeing. So we talked a lot about theater and he really for somebody who got a lot of attention and who, who honestly sought a lot of attention through his work, he was always so generous giving attention to other people. Well, especially to me when I was sitting there. But you know, he had this love of the theater, which permeates uh, every aspect of his uh, life and his art, uh, not only on stage. I mean, we even, uh, we know of his love of opera and you even uh, tell us in the book how that began. Uh, and, uh, but as you're getting to know him uh, more and more, what were the aha moments for you writing this book? I think one of the aha moments was how he became so politicized through his work and that he hated being called a gay playwright, but he would be a gay playwright when it served a political uh, end when it got people to be aware of things. He, he thought people should just be playwrights, but he thought they should write about what they were. So he kind of felt marginalized when he was put, put in that. So he didn't like playing the gay card, but I, I love that he would when, it, when he felt that it would benefit the community. Well, I want to talk about that for just a moment, because when, again, going back to this idea that I have about celebrating a person's body of worth, uh, we are all shaped by the people that we encounter and the circumstances that uh, that happened to us. And obviously from the very beginning, uh, you know, and it may not even be PC now, but the Ritz is still one of my favorites. Uh, <laughs> I love it so much. Um, but um, let's talk about the AIDS crisis and how the AIDS crisis really did shape uh, the rest of his life from that point on and how it really had this you know, umbrella hue over everything that he did from that point on in terms of the work that he did. And he did become an activist, as you mentioned. Right. Right. And I think that it just as he said, when, when, he, when he was asked about why did you write about Vietnam? He, he said, how could you not? Because it was so present. He felt the same way about the HIV AIDS crisis as it came up because it was it was decimating the community. It took his his lover Robert Drivas. It took his lover Gary Bonasarte. 
Bonsarte. I'm not sure how I say that. I've, I've never said that name correctly, so I apologize to all your viewers. Well, you spell uh, it right in the book. Yeah, I, I do spell it right. That's why I'm a writer, not a. Not, <laughs> uh, I think it's Bonsarte, but who started Rattlestick, and certainly all the friends of his who were who were decimated by it. And I think when you get to love, valor, compassion, you really begin to understand how he was affected. So you hear Buzz and you hear the different characters, uh, John and James Jekyll, you hear them talking about what this disease means to them and, and how it's decimating. And you, you even see it a little bit in the Lisbon Traviata, which is abstract and operatic, but it's definitely right there. And out of all of his work, the uh, one piece that he considered to be the most autobiographical, which surprised me, uh, was... Was Masterclass. Masterclass. <laughs> that's, that's the one about Maria Callas. Yes. And when he, he wrote one play when he was probably in, in, when he was still at Columbia called The Other Side of the Door. And it's, it's, it, I talk about it in the book. It was deeply personal. And he realized after writing that, that he didn't want to write autobiographically because he, he felt once you've tapped into your family, where do you go? But instead, Masterclass, if you really look at it, it is the whole story of how does an artist become themselves, fight for themselves, and actually age. And that, that last speech- Hold on which, to it. Hold which, on to it. Yeah. And, and the, the last speech of that play is absolutely beautiful. When, when I'm going to paraphrase, but when, when Maria says, if you do this, if you practice, if you become the best artist you can, you have paid me back. And I, and I think Terrence really believed that. Well, those who are lucky enough to reach the level of success that he reached, uh, we know that it's a double-edged sword because you want to have the creative freedom to do what you want to do. Uh, but let's talk about his first Broadway show. And that was, of course, uh, Things That Go Bump in the Night. Um, and how that whole experience, uh, which was not, you know, yeah. all everything was an oh, coming up roses, uh, <laughs> that experience of what that did to him psychologically. Well, it, it it started. It is it's a, it's a it's actually a long story. It's gestation. It had started, I think, in in Minnesota as a workshop, and I go into that in length because it's it's mm -hmm. kind of funny and kind of tragic at the same time. But it finally got to Broadway, and they wanted actually to do it off Broadway. But Paul Libin, who's still a producer, really was determined to bring it to Broadway. It was a time when off-off Broadway was coming to Broadway and the, you know, the Cognoscenti wanted to feel artsy and wanted to feel what, what William Goldman calls a snob hit. You might not get it, but you are certainly special for, for being there. So they brought it to Broadway. It was a tempestuous rehearsal process, very different styles, you know, actor studio meets presentational, never gonna mix. And it, it was just very, very challenging. And there were a lot of stories about the, uh, the early, uh, rehearsal process, but then it opened and it got castigated in the reviews. It got terrible reviews and they, they were going to close in one night, but they, they realized that they wanted to keep it going. They kept it going for, I, I think, a total of 16 performances by charging $1 for the seats, uh, $2 on, on weekend. And, and there's a picture in the book of the sign that they posted uh, outside the theater. And ironically, people started to come. But then they thought, well, maybe we'll make it three bucks. And people stopped coming. <laughs> so <laughs> it was definitely what the market would bear. High price. 
well, you know, as you were again getting to know him, I, I'm really fascinated. The man behind all of this, uh, as he was, te- uh, you know, reliving some of these moments, were there moments based on what was happening that he felt that could have been handled differently? And was it all about the timing of these situations happening? I, 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 hmm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think he was, some of the memories were still very raw for him. There's one around bump uh, where he was standing out in front of the marquee on, on opening night. And he heard Gene Kerr, the please don't eat the daisies person, hey. wife of Walter Kerr say, let's go see what the boyfriend did. And she, he was 60 years later when he told that story, you could, you could feel that it still rankled with him because A, it had been two years since he'd been with Albie and, and B, he felt like he was never going to be seen for himself. And that was one of the things that motivated him. He wanted to be seen and heard. So that was, that was rough. And it, I don't, I, I think he can call up the feelings even 60 years later. What was the moment you feel where he felt that he was beginning to truly be felt and heard? He told a story about mothers and sons. Now that's, almost 50 years, right, after Bump in the Night. And he said, I got out of the cab on 44th Street and I looked up at the logo of Mothers and Sons and he said, I felt like I finally arrived. Now, that, that's, that's certainly modesty for you because he'd been there, but it was the time when he really felt that he had, he had really belonged in the Broadway community. And as you're looking at his writing, um, what shows do you feel truly shaped who he was instead of him being the creator. Uh, Because, I mean, I believe, and you know this to be true, that once you sit down to start writing anything, it takes on a life of its own. Yeah, yeah. Uh, He would would write, uh, Tom, his husband said he would would write and he'd hear him like trying out different voices and things. So he always knew that he was was in the middle of it. But I I think it was the, the musicals that were that were the most challenging for him. There was never a musical he worked on that he didn't threaten to quit <laughs> at, <laughs> at one point. Because musicals are stressful. It can take mm-hmm. 10 years and it takes $10 million or whatever it takes. And, and there was the, the, uh, the need to collaborate. And in the case of something like Anastasia, he had not only to do to collaborate, but to deal with Fox Studios. You had an animated studio and you had a movie and you had the, the live action movie. So he had to negotiate all of that. And I think through that, he was able to tell the story he wanted. And I think that's where he insisted that he he be heard, even with all the things pushing on him. Well, you mentioned all the things pushing on him. Do you feel that he had the right team of people around him looking out for his, uh, I mean, Tom aside, you know, because we know uh, of that love story. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, But did he have the right people uh, standing side by side with him on his path to towards uh, the end, basically? I think so. And I, and I think there's a, there's a big part in the center of the book where I talk about his relationship with MTC and Lynn Meadow. And Lynn Meadow was, she's a force of nature. I adore Lynn Meadow. She, she really is a force of nature. And she, w- she said, I would sit down at the beginning of each season and as I planned it out, I would just write in new Terrence McNally play, not knowing what it was. So she gave him an artistic home and gave him the leeway to explore 
whatever it was he wanted to explore and she she gave it a home so an artist knowing that they're going to get produced that's probably one of the strongest uh, buoys you can give someone you know and it's it's interesting that you and you point this out in the book that uh because i remember every year looking forward to that new terence mcnally play that was going to open right and it was met with a lot of excitement. And even when the reviews were not always there, and they all weren't always there, they were not. The excitement of the audience for a new Terrence McNally play was always there. Yeah, and, and what's he? And be, it was because he didn't do the same thing every time. You would see love, valor, compassion, and a perfect Ganesh, and, and you know. And Frankie the and Johnny and the Claire de Lune. <laughs> and, and he was never, he never really, he never did anything twice to quote the Sondheim song. <laughs> Absolutely. So as you're writing the book, what are you learning about yourself through his writings? Um, Without you, but you are. An oh, old- I'm, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I I've, well, I've, I've, I've been out since the Earth's crust cooled. Well, it happened. Uh, so, uh, but what are you learning about yourself is you're looking through the lens of a completely different person. I thought it was what I, what I learned about myself was really about how to open my heart to whatever the story is and to, to understand, to hear all these wonderful stories from Kathy Bates and Christine Baranski and Jason Alexander and Cheetah Rivera and all of these people and to hear the the love and the passion that they that they uh, brought to each of the pieces and to the end of the storytelling, I really aspired to that, and I realized that I love writing. You know, I always have loved writing, but but when it actually had an end and there was a publisher who was waiting for it, it really became, as I said earlier, a labor of love. Well, I was going to ask you. I mean, it, I always am curious as to whether it's your decision, the publisher's decision or the editor's decision. When did you know that this book was ready for us to be able to have in our hands? When, when my deadline of August 1st last year came up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of kidding. Uh, but but I, I was, it, it almost got derailed during the pandemic. Uh, my editor was gone and then a new editor picked it up and, and ran with it. Uh, it, it was something that, that just took shape over about five years of, of collecting information and information and interviews and stuff. But really, I, I locked myself up in this apartment from, from May to August last year and basically wrote it. Now, I want to go back to that five-year-old little boy. Um, could you imagine, well, moving forward to when you were around 13, uh, when you get the key and you go in and could you have ever imagined that you would be able to uh, sit down and have these conversations with Terrence McNally so many years later? Absolutely not. And that's, that's the magic of just see what happens. And to sort of when I, when I talk in my other world, when I talk to young people about uh, what was the secret to my career, it's the sentence, sure, I'll try that. You know, what's the worst that could happen, right? And and it's uh, it's it's been really exciting, and to to see oppor- to have opportunities presented, and then to run with them has been a real privilege. Yeah, and it's very interesting. You and I, before we went live, you know, we talked. I mean, I grew up watching Carol Channing. Years later, we became friends, and to be able to sit down and share experiences that I had 
watching her on TV as a kid. Right. Uh, he loved hearing. I am just curious, and you do address it in the book a little bit, uh, his thoughts when you went and told him about going in with a key and uh, rescuing these plays from, uh, you know, the garbage uh, dump. I, I, I think he was tickled. I, I think he was tickled. And in fact, I, one of the very, very first times we met, um, I, I, which, was long, which was long before, and I, I, had, uh, I had recited some of the, the, the stuff from, from the early scenes of things that go bump in the night, that, that's how much that play had stayed with me. And I think that's a special thing about theater. We were talking earlier about things that stay with you for a lifetime, those images, those lines. They stay with you for a lifetime and they become part of who you are. Do you remember the first show that you saw? Yes. I, I'm not talking yeah. about Tony McNally. I'm talking about uh, ever on stage. The, I think the first show I ever saw was a production of the opera Hansel and Gretel. I was probably three and my mom had to take me out because I was too scared. Wow. <laughs> I think I'll tell you about a production that I did of Murat Saad that scared the hell out of my brother, who was eight years old at the time. <laughs> and I th still think he's traumatized by it, if he happens to be watching this right now. Uh, but, you, uh, but you also, early on in your own life, uh, you were pursuing a career as an actor. Um, Frank Langella mentions in his book that magical moment of stepping from the darkness into the light. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the first time that you stepped out in front of an audience? I, I kind of do. It would have it would have been in school. What I remember more is when I when I was determined that this was something I I was going to do around age ten, and there was a, there was a, I grew up in Delaware and there was a lot of community and regional theater around there. It was very very active at the time, and I got cast in a production of Oliver. And was one of the, and that to me was suddenly I'm around adults who are doing this and I'm doing this. And P.S. One of my fellow orphans was Tony Winner Reed Bernie. So I've been on stage <laughs> at H. Ted with with Tony Winner Reed Bernie. And he's been on stage with you. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, you could put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, but when did you? I mean, when did the shift happen? Uh, I mean, again, you are a brilliant writer. But when did the shift really happen for you where you said, this is really the direction that I want to go in? Uh, I, I think that what happened was I, when I came to New York, I was doing stage management. I was doing things. I was working in a publishing company uh, to pay the bills. I, I won a writing test. I was promoted into their toys division and I was doing toys. And I was also acting at the time and I had an opportunity to go into a show or take a job. And I can remember standing, watching this show that was on its last legs uh, and thinking, you know, I'm offered this other job. And one of my great mentors had said, when you find something that makes you as happy as doing theater, do that. And that's really how I got into doing toys and writing. And so I now have the secret, not so secret, double life of doing toys and children's development and theater and writing about theater. Well, what is it about writing that excites you the most? I think it's the opportunity to tell a story, to to find something within yourself that you hope will resonate with somebody else, to communicate something. It's the same thing that drove Terrence. He had things to say. And, mm -hmm. and I think that for me, at least with this book, I wanted to be of service to 
those young people who, like me, may be discovering themselves through plays that are thrown out and they happen to save. Hopefully they'll be able to catch those plays before <laughs> completely thrown out. Right. Um, so you started out with interviews with Terrence, but you, the world that opened up to you in terms of who you were able to interview for this book uh, has been amazing. Um, did you have a lot of those contacts prior to writing this book or mm -hmm. did they unfold as the book unfolded? You know, that was the huge gift that Terrence gave me. He emailed all of these people and said, this guy is going to be contacting you. Uh, I would like you to talk to him. And almost everyone was, was, happy, was happy to respond and gave me so much. And Terrence told me later that some of them would call up and say, okay, I did the interview. Here's what I said. Is that okay? <laughs> Well, he said warts and all, although there are no warts there. Um, there, there weren't many. <laughs> no. Uh, but did you see the list before he called everyone? Uh, he, his assistant just, just sent it to me. He said, here are the people we've reached out to. And I was, I'm sitting there, and I have a great friend, Michelle, because I, you know, I'm trying to be all professional. And I, go, and I would call Michelle and go, I'm going to talk to Christy Baranski! You know, <laughs> all, like total fanboy. And then I'd get and on. That's all I was before you came on tonight, Chris. <laughs> and I go, I go, Miss Baranski, how lovely to speak, to speak to you. I saw you in this, you know, because it was it was exciting. And and what what all of these people have in common, I mean, all of them, is how much they love this craft and how seriously they take it. And that was an inspiration. So when you looked at this list, what was the name, oh, Christine Baranski, aside, that jumped out? You went, oh my God, I can't believe. I'm going to get the opportunity to speak with this person. And we both obviously love Terrence McNally. So what was the opening uh, remarks with each of these interviews uh, that put them at ease that they knew that they were in good hands with you? I, I would tell them what the book was about, that I wasn't looking for gossip. And, and which Patty Lapone gave a really snappy comeback to, uh, but, but uh, that I wasn't looking for gossip and I really wanted to talk about the artistic relationship and how Terrence, how they grew through Terrence, how Terrence affected them because I knew how, how he, he was affected by them. I mean, somebody like Nathan Lane, who shows up off book, who is, sets the bar for every production he works in and yet is the the nicest, funniest guy you'd ever meet. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So out of all that you, I mean, was there a Holy Grail interview that you wanted that you didn't get? And you can mention the name or not. That's up to you. Uh, Elaine May was the Holy Grail. She was, she was the whole Holy Grail. The, the challenge between when we first had the idea and, and it got going was people like Zoe Caldwell, unfortunately, passed away. I got to talk to many of the other Maria Callises. Um, and other people, but but Elaine May is famously publicity shy. She famously doesn't talk to people. And I thought, but Terrence will get her for me, and I'll be able to do it. And and she just she didn't respond. <laughs> wow, what was your process? Uh, did you go back uh, and uh, go from beginning to end on all of his plays? Uh, did you go back and watch videos? What was your process in terms of putting this book together well well certainly and especially <clears throat> during the pandemic i read all the plays again i i looked at i watched the movies that that there are 
I watched the very grainy bootleg of the rink from, shot from the mezzanine, uh, which you can barely it, see. I saw it six times. Uh-huh. And Liza was in every performance that I saw. <laughs> and I know that there are rumors and everything that, and some of them may be based on fact, but she gave 150% every time I saw her. Right. And, and Liza wasn't giving interviews. And by the time... We got to it. Angela Lansbury's health had declined to where she wasn't she wasn't doing interviews. But but if you want to know, Cheetah Rivera, I, she she said her people her people said you know she'll give you twenty minutes. And two hours later, we were still talking. She is the most generous person, and she loved working with Liza because she she really felt that they uh, that Liza really brought the work and wanted to be taken seriously as an actress and. The audience kind of didn't want her to do that. Mm -hmm. I love the story that she tells that when I called and said, uh, uh, Kendra Ebb said, uh, we're writing a new musical and you're going to be playing, uh, you know, opposite Liza. She said, in what capacity? <laughs> she said, mother. <laughs> right. Oh, I know. I know. They they'd wanted to be girlfriends, but uh, didn't quite work out that way. But it was, I mean, it's a beautiful uh, it's actually a beautiful script and a beautiful show. And I think that if it had been Kander and Can well, John Kander and Terrence both thought that it really achieved what they wanted. But when you put a cheetah and Eliza in a show like that, it changes everything. You can't be an off-Broadway musical when you've got Cheetah Rivera and Liza Minnelli above the title. And again, going back, uh, and if you will share the story uh, of Angela Lansbury, and Terrence, because she changed the, the, I believe, the trajectory of his life. Completely. And Terrence, Terrence was an alcoholic, and he, he, made, he didn't talk about it publicly in that way. He didn't say, hi, I'm Terrence, you know, all that. Uh, but he was at a birthday party for, I forget who it was. It was Stephen Sondheim. He was, was at a birthday was party for Stephen Sondheim, and he'd spilled a drink on Lauren Bacall because he was drunk. And Lauren Bacall said, I'm sending you the, I can't do Lauren Bacall, I'm sending you the cleaning bill. And Angela Lansbury came up to him and said, you don't know me, but you're, you're throwing your life away drinking. And it was the, he tells that story, she tells that story in the, in the uh, documentary, Every Act of Life. But mm -hmm. what Terrence added to me was that her kindness and the fact that she really cared and she had helped her own children get away from drugs and alcohol, that she was really, she really knew it and saw it and saw him. That was the, the pivotal moment that changed his life. And he got sober. He, I think April of 1982 uh, was his sobriety date. Well, I'm the adult uh, son of an alcoholic and I never took up that habit um, or that disease never got a hold on me, thank God. Uh, but he lived with it with his mother and then went down the same path. Right. Right. It's a, it's a family disease. My parents were both alcoholics. I'm, I'm sober 20 years. And that was something that we talked about and that, you know, what that, what that process was. And, and thank God, because it really is like being reborn to life. It really is. Now, I have to talk about uh, seeing Masterclass on stage is, to me, it's life affirming. Uh, to me, it's one of the greatest uh, pieces of theater out there. 
And I was lucky enough to see, believe it or not, Dixie Carter in the role. Did you see her? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But I thought she was amazing in it. And she really took on, I felt that I was watching Maria Callas on stage. Oh, she was great. I, I was so privileged. I got to see Zoe Caldwell. I got to see Patti Lapone. I got to see Dixie Carter. I later saw Tyne Daly. Um, and I will say, Richard, you have a look. You have a look. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I, I hope everyone out there knows you don't have a look. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right, it's a wonderful speech. She comes down and says, you know, you need a look. You, you don't have a look. You're very nice, very comilfo, but you don't have a look. You need to get one and as quick as possible. It's much easier than practicing great, your great, scales. Great <laughs> and of course, did, I mean, that, the movie never got made. Uh, no. Did she have thoughts on this? It, it's hard. I mean, there, there, boy, that, that movie, I think, is still percolating somewhere. And I, in his, there is not, in his archives, uh, a screenplay. So I know that it, it's still percolating somewhere. I, I think that, I think every actress in Hollywood, Hollywood would fight tooth and nail to get to do that as a movie. But I'm, I'm not sure how it would work as a there movie. Wasn't talk at one time that there was going to be a movie version of that? Oh yeah, yeah, th- there has been. And, and I think it would be, uh, you know, I kind of think it would be better to, as a, this is just me, but what do I know? As, a, as kind of a great performances because it's that, the electricity of when an audience is in that room with her is, is that's why it's theater. That's why it's theater. And Terrence's movies didn't always do as well because it was that electricity of being in the room. So the powers that be, if you're watching right now, and I hope you are, I would love to see a great performances with all of the actresses that are still with us. Oh yeah. Recreating moments from that iconic show. And of course with Zoe Caldwell, we'll have, film footage but right. I, because I, every actress even though they're playing this iconic character brings a, their own um for lack of a better word is pathos the right word to use uh with that character because the words that he wrote are just out of this world Right. I, I think it's the humanity and I think it's the vulnerability that she that she has. And that's what made her such a such a great diva. I mean, she, she was she was observed, really, because her antics made made world headlines. So, you know, when she'd walk off stage and do things. But but she was kind of iconic. And but what Terrence found was the the artist struggling around and within all of that cultural noise surrounding her. As you're describing uh, Masterclass in the book, and as I mentioned earlier, you mentioned that he felt that it was the most autobiographical of his plays. And as time went on, and you mentioned this in the book, uh, people don't even know who Maria Callas is. I know. Some people don't. So how do you think that people are going to remember uh, Terrence McNally? I, I think that they'll remember the plays that, that may get done, the plays that, that are somewhat timeless, that are not sort of like Love, Valor, Compassion or uh, Lips Together, Teeth Apart. I think they'll remember Frankie and Johnny in the, in the Claire de Lune because that is such a, a beautiful play about intimacy. I think they'll, they'll certainly remember the musicals, uh, Ragtime, Full Monty, Man of No Importance, uh, Anastasia, which is getting productions. And they'll remember the operas because Dead Man Walking is the most produced our opera in the world. I think it's had 70 some odd productions. 
Wow, I didn't know that. That's yeah, I, it's 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 great. It's it's beautiful. Jake Heggie's score is spectacular. It's, it, put it on your iTunes or Apple Tunes and just go nuts. <laughs> How far into the book were you when he passed? I was not that far. I mean, we'd had we'd had a bunch of conversations, but in terms of in terms of the actual writing, I was I I had stood up from transcribing and working with interviews, and a friend of mine called and said did you know that Terrence had died? And that, of course, was in March of 2020. And I said, no, uh, because we already had planned to get together the, the following month and pick up from where we left off. And he was, it was one of the casualties of COVID. Yes, yeah. He'd had, he'd had lung cancer for years. And, and as he said, he'd had about a quarter of a lung left. And it, the, he and Tom went to Florida where they thought they could at, at least ride it out and as best they could. But but he had prob- complications. And then when he got COVID, he just wasn't able to overcome that. I only met him once. And uh, this was, there was an off-Broadway off production of Corpus Christi, uh, Corpus Christi uh, several years ago. And he was there. And I had that brief moment of just being able to say, Thank you to him. Oh, that's great. And, uh, so, uh, and he couldn't have been more gracious. You know, he asked my name and, you know, if I was in the theater and, you know, and, uh, and I said, you haven't seen me? No, no. Uh, no so it, we, it was just an incredible uh, moment. So in our remaining moments that are left here, uh, what is the biggest takeaway that you hope that people will mm-hmm. get from your book? I, I think it's, if you if you have something you want to say, don't let anybody stop you saying it, and and to to live authentically and to to follow to follow those dreams and there and people are gonna throw things life is gonna throw things in your way, but it's it's that vision and what you want to do and never stop. He never stopped writing. He was always working on something. Uh, he, his archives are full of things. Some of them are pages long. Some of them are scraps. Some of them are torn off of something else that ideas he was always thinking and always engaged so so find that thing you love and and stay engaged with it because it'll open up doors for you and just in terms of your life and how has your life changed since the book came out well you know it's funny because i people have been very generous like you have and kind about it and i thought you know, I, I'm just this ink-stained wretch doing something that I'm loving to do. But I, <laughs> but but I'm finding that people have been really affected by him. That's the thing that I love is people have their stories of of having met him. And a dear friend of mine, Jennifer Deer, who I worked with for years, when when this was green lit, she sent me a picture that day of her acting cover of the acting edition of Apple Pie that she still had that she'd done in high school or college. So so I mean that's the you know, it's, you never know the impact you're going to have on somebody's life. And Terrence affected so many people. And did you ever get the chance to perform one of his plays? I never did. I never did. I, I would be a great Maria Callas. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> well, Christopher, you've got to look. All right. You've I'll got, get the look. You've got to look. So <laughs> I think it could happen. So what's next for you? Wow. Um, well, it's it's coming up on toy season, so I, so I'm getting I'm doing that, and I'm really I'm still a little bit recovering from from doing this book and trying to see what what's next. I mean, I I, I say it in the in the acknowledgments, but everybody I interviewed should get a book on their own. 
I don't think I can do all of them. Uh, but but they, they are just some amazing people. Well, you are an amazing person. And I love this book. Uh, everyone, I can't put it down. And then <laughs> I was getting ready for today. I was going back. And, I, and the book is so beautifully written. And I wanted to make notes in it. But I, I kept myself from doing it saying, I hope I remember everything uh, because I didn't want to mark up any of the pages. It's a beautiful book. You should be proud of yourself. Congratulations. Thank you. And you're welcome here anytime, but don't go anywhere for a moment. Uh, I want to give my uh, final comments and then you're going to have the final word tonight. Okay. If you got anything that we spoke about that you want to build upon, anything that we didn't speak about that you wish we had, or just any final message you want to leave everyone with. And when you say goodbye, the credits will roll. Um, I want to thank everyone for being here tonight. Uh, it's a Saturday night in July. You could have been on Far Island or the Hamptons or anywhere else. But the fact that you decided to spend an hour with Christopher and myself, I'm sure that I can speak for him when I say this. We don't take it lightly. So thank you. But don't let it stop here. Tell your friends about tonight's interview. Uh, this will be archived on my YouTube channel. Um, I'd like you to go and uh, to your favorite bookseller and ask if they have it on their shelves. And if they don't, tell them they should get it and tell them why, based on what you've learned tonight from this interview. Uh, order two copies. Keep one for yourself and send one. Uh, to the second name that pops up on your friends list on Facebook. I always end every show by telling everyone to pick up the phone and call someone that you haven't spoken to in a while. Uh, even though he had dealt with some health issues, Terrence McNally's passing hit the world by surprise. It's just those moments where we are aware of how fragile every single moment is. So pick up the phone, call someone you haven't spoken to in a while, and let them know that they've made a difference in your life. And I assure you, if you do this, you're going to make a difference in their life. I have a dear friend, and he says, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different size boats. And I always say, I don't care what size boat you're on, as long as you have a skipper by your side. And with that, I'm going to leave, and Christopher... I hope that you and I will stay in touch and I hope that we will continue this. It's all yours. Thank you. I think that one of the things that's so important about what Terrence did and the one word that came up in every interview was love. And Terrence loved freely and fearlessly and he gave of himself and it didn't always work out, but it didn't stop him. If he got knocked down, he, he got up. He had something to say and he wanted to make sure he was heard. So I hope that everybody out there who has something to say doesn't let anything stop them and love and be kind because it's easy and the lightness that comes with it is really a, a gift and a privilege. So thank you, Richard Skipper. Thank all of you for watching. I really appreciate it.